you have any questions for Politics and Science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politics and science at madriver.com. Politics and Science can be heard weekly on WMRWLP Warren 95.1 FM, airing on Mondays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at noon. And in the Bellows Falls area, can be heard on Wool LP Bellows Falls at 101.1 FM, airing from 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays and from 9 to 10 a.m. on Mondays. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization. And we should be talking to Ray Pete. Ray, can you hear me? Very good. Uh, welcome again to Politics and Science. And uh, last week we were talking about uh, metabolism, oxidative metabolism, and uh, what's the other? Glycolysis, I guess, which is... Yeah, glycolysis uh, or lactic acid from glucose. And we were doing that in the context of what it is to be a healthy person um, and having raised that not only enough energy... Uh, to get your tasks done, but also enough to, to uh, regenerate the damage that inevitably happens to everybody as they go through daily life. Um, and I thought you said something last week which I thought was interesting, which was that we uh, regenerate uh, 25 to 30 percent of the fats in our brains every night, I think you said. Um, um, yeah, there are different ways to look at it. Um, it might even be more than that if you uh, think about taking a phospholipid apart into its components and then rebuilding more uh, phospholipids so that uh, a chain will exist uh, as, as a unit but be rebuilt into a bigger structure. That kind of turnover um, probably is uh, more than at 20 or 30 percent during the night, um, you can see 25 percent of that kind of turnover in, uh, I think it was less than an hour in some animal studies, but uh, if you look at the actual oxidation and renewal of particular fats, so that uh, a fat is broken down into carbon dioxide, for example, and then new fats come in from the bloodstream, that's more like 5% per day. If, if you look at just uh, arachidonic acid, for example, which makes up uh, a considerable amount of the fat in the brain, that changes uh, and is renewed by the bloodstream about 5% per day. Can I ask a dumb question? Why are we regenerating fats? Uh, well, one? the brain is metabolically very active, and uh, the, when you stress a rat, the turnover in the brain is even faster than at rest. But the brain is adapting for the whole organism and uh, uh, thinking up new ways to handle the environment and uh, whether you put a rat in a tumbling drum to stress it or just have to go through the eight or ten hours of darkness during the night, 
uh, they're both stressful and the brain is um, trying to deal with the stress and um, make innovations or, or adjustments that help the body to cope with the next day's uh, tasks. So the, the original fats are being uh, burned or are they just getting um, oxidated? And uh, Well, and, um, a, a small amount, like 5% or so, maybe more, are actually being oxidized and uh, a larger amount, maybe 30 or 60%, something like that, is being reshuffled uh, from one molecule to another so that um, there are many types of phospholipids and other fats in the brain and uh, the subunits can change around so that the uh, the functions of the nerve cells are adjusted as the type of, fun- of phospholipid changes. I see. So, and when we're regenerating things like that, um, obviously you need enough energy to be doing that at night. And uh, but if you don't have the energy to to reproduce uh, parts of yourself that are getting worn out or need to be adapted, uh, what happens? Well, the brain uh, synthesizes and stores glycogen similar to muscles and liver, and with aging or stress, the glycogen is depleted, and it takes deep sleep uh, to uh, regenerate the glycogen. And the glycogen seems to be essential, even if you have uh, circulating glucose. Uh, the glycogen is used for those uh, stress-adaptive processes. Uh, and uh, the... the um, having all of your biochemical machinery uh, available, thyroid and the vitamins and minerals and so on, is necessary, but then uh, the deep sleep is needed to restore the glycogen so that you can uh, meet the next stresses. I see. Um, So... When you're uh, re- trying to regenerate uh, and trying to get enough of the, the foods that you need uh, to provide that energy, um, you've mentioned before that some foods are particularly unhealthy uh, to your thyroid, which sounds like probably the key mechanism for keeping your metabolism up so that you have the energy available to use. Um, yeah. Um, you want to avoid the uh, specific anti-thyroid compounds, the goitrogens that you find in a lot of vegetables, grains, and nuts. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the polyunsaturated fats are uh, anti-thyroid. And tryptophan and cysteine that you find in muscle meats at a very high concentration are anti-thyroid. Mm. So... And a lot of people, I think, um, I don't, I don't know if we've really talked in any detail about your uh, theories about thyroid. I didn't properly introduce you. Uh, Ray Pete, we're talking to today, is a, uh, is an endocrinologist and a physiologist and a science historian. And uh, as an endocrinologist, uh, you have extensive knowledge about hormones and uh, the function of the thyroid gland is 
uh, a key part of that, our, our physiological system, our endocrine system, I guess you'd say. And I was wondering, Ray, if you'd maybe explain the function of the thyroid a little bit, and um, and then we could talk about how this the thyroid is is uh, measured. Thyroid function is measured in this day and age, and how that's changed over the years. Um, people think of the thyroid as being regulated by the pituitary hormone TSH, which uh, does its a major activator, but it's um, responsive to practically everything in the internal environment. Uh, if your estrogen is high, the enzymes in the gland uh, become less responsive, and the gland accumulates rather than secreting hormone, and uh, progesterone facilitates the enzymes that are needed to secrete the hormone. Uh, polyunsaturated fats inhibit those same enzymes. And so if, you're, if your body is experiencing a deficiency, your pituitary will increase the TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone, to um, try to get the gland to compensate. And if you have a lot of estrogen and polyunsaturated fats circulating, the gland uh, will enlarge under the stimulation of the pituitary, but without secreting very efficiently. And um, during puberty and pregnancy, it's very common for women to have an enlarged thyroid because of the estrogen uh, inhibiting the release of the hormone. And then uh, with a change of circumstances or diet or having the baby, uh, when the estrogen uh, goes down, uh, sometimes there will be an episode of hyperthyroid function as that stored hormone can be released. And uh, that will often scare uh, the patient's doctor um, if they see their pulse running at 125 beats per minute at rest and their uh, hands being pink and warm and sweaty, uh, that's classical hyperthyroidism. But uh, a lot of doctors will uh, kill your thyroid with radioactive iodine or cut it out when they see symptoms like that. But it's really usually just a, um, a natural adaptive process in which the, the enlarged gland is returning to normal size and it takes a few weeks usually to um, safely unload that amount of uh, stored colloid or thyroglobulin. Uh, some people have told me that they never felt better in their lives than when they, they were in their uh, month or two of hyperthyroidism. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, that's the opportunity for surgeons and radiologists to uh, destroy the thyroid. And, um, oh, go ahead, sorry. The, in the 1950s, it was discovered that uh, one molecule called T3, triiodothyronine, is the, the active promoter of respiration, uh, but it took 
decades for that information to uh, circulate through the American medical community. Um, uh, the Japanese, Israelis, and Russians were the uh, first ones to really assimilate that information. Um, since estrogen inhibits the uh, activity of the thyroid, uh, women are about five or ten times as likely to have thyroid problems as men. But when one form of synthetic thyroid, T4, which isn't the active respiration promoter, when that was uh, created chemically and, and became a product, it was tested on 25-year-old male medical students, uh, good health uh, young males, and it was found to act just like the um, desiccated thyroid glands that had been used at that time for 50 years as a medical supplement. And so the marketers uh, began selling it to females without really testing it on females because it worked on young men. But in fact, um, it very often uh, interferes because it, the pituitary and brain uh, will respond to it and shut off the thyroid-stimulating hormone. And so it's good at turning off a woman's thyroid gland without necessarily being converted in the liver into the active form. Um, an experimenter uh, in the 1960s uh, who hadn't assimilated the uh, knowledge of the two hormones uh, normally existing in a ratio of three or four to one, this experimenter sliced up uh, pieces of muscle kidney, liver, heart, brain, and so on, and then added what he called the thyroid hormone, thyroxin, or T4, to the solution. And uh, he found that it suppressed oxidative metabolism in the heart and muscle and brain. And the liver was the only gland that was uh, strongly responsive to increasing its uh, respiration rate uh, in, in proportion to the amount of added thyroxin. And so he said uh, he had demonstrated that respiration isn't the important thing uh, done by the thyroid hormone because uh, how could it be important if the thyroid hormone suppresses the metabolism of the brain and the heart? But in fact, it, the liver is the source of about 70% of the active thyroid hormone that circulates in the bloodstream. Uh, the thyroid gland secretes a little bit, 25 or 30% of the active hormone, <clears throat> but the liver, as, as it senses the need for energy in the body <clears throat> converts T4 to T3 and uh, the brain doesn't have much of that capacity for activating the hormone and so when the T4 increases uh, beyond a certain small amount it displaces the active hormone 
and suppresses brain metabolism. And um, I've seen that happen in numerous women. First time I heard about it was uh, at the University of Oregon Medical uh, School Hospital in Portland. Uh, a, a woman who had been on uh, one grain of thyroxin uh, for some time was getting worse, so they raised her dose to two grains, and um, every six months or so she would be worse, and so they would increase it. They finally reached the the level of the equivalent of five grains, which was uh, uh, 500 micrograms of, I think it was Synthroid. And at that point, she went into a coma called a myxedema coma, in which uh, the skin and other tissues puff up with a gelatinous edema material. And um, she was deeply comatose. And luckily, some doctor knew about T3 being the active hormone and gave her intravenous T3, and immediately she came out of the coma and was okay. Uh, But I've seen that happen to lower degrees in in women who would lose their memory or concentration or uh, get strange sensations, uh, uh, neurological symptoms when they were taking pure T4. But um, if they would take a balanced product like um, natural desiccated thyroid, uh, their symptoms would disappear. And how does estrogen become a problem in in pregnancy? Because I thought that's when uh, progesterone was high in in the cycle. Um, Yeah, if, if a person is low in thyroid going into the pregnancy, or if they don't eat enough protein and uh, certain vitamins so that the liver can function. Uh, The liver, in experiments, if you put uh, a source of estrogen where it goes directly to the liver and measure the amount coming out of the liver, in a healthy person, it's 100% going in and 0% coming out, meaning that the liver totally inactivated the estrogen. Mm. But if it doesn't have enough protein or certain vitamins, the liver can't inactivate estrogen, and so 100% goes in, and maybe 99% of it still comes out. And so uh, the estrogen is allowed to reach very high levels, and the thyroid would activate the liver metabolism and restore its ability to destroy estrogen but it becomes a vicious cycle in which if your thyroid's a little low the liver lets estrogen accumulate to a very high level and that makes your thyroid go lower by blocking the gland itself and so it's a vicious circle Hmm. and since thyroid is needed to um, synthesize progesterone converting cholesterol into progesterone what happens in that situation is that your cholesterol rises and your progesterone becomes very low. I see. And that uh, brings us to another uh, common issue, which is many people have high cholesterol 
and uh, maybe you could, I don't know, maybe you don't need to elaborate because you just said it. But um, Yeah, in, in 1936, uh, papers were published showing that if you measure the cholesterol at the time a person's thyroid gland is removed surgically, uh, there is a steady, sharp increase over the next few weeks in the blood cholesterol. And then when you put them on a thyroid supplement, the hmm. cholesterol returns to normal. Um, and if you are charting the metabolic rate, the oxygen consumption of the whole organism, it's a mirror image of the cholesterol. The um, metabolic rate and oxygen consumption fall as the cholesterol rises hmm. under the hypothyroid circumstance. And if you supplement thyroid just as a, as the metabolic rate increases, the cholesterol decreases. And I've seen a couple people who were in a hurry to get their cholesterol down hundreds of points. One had 400 milligrams per cent, the other one 500 and something. And uh, they wanted to have a, a good physical exam, and they took the active T3 hormone in physiological amounts, roughly 5 micrograms per hour. And in a week, they had re restored their cholesterol to the normal range of around 200 milligrams per cent. Hmm. That's remarkable. So is it just that... A lower metabolism, you are not converting the cholesterol into the other steroids? Yeah, the, um, some cholesterol is converted to form bile acids, uh, steroids that help to emulsify fats in the intestine. Uh, but the formation of DHEA, pregnenolone, and progesterone uh, uses um, a massive amount of the circulating cholesterol. For example, uh, an experimenter put the um, bloodstream into an isolated ovary and then measured the uh, hormones or substances in the blood coming out of the ovary. And the amount of progesterone coming out the other side of the ovary corresponded directly to the amount of cholesterol going into the ovary. Hmm. And so if your cholesterol level was lowered, the progesterone produced by the ovary was lowered. And, and that experiment didn't uh, adjust the other components, such as thyroid and vitamin A that, that are involved, but those were kept at a functional level so that uh, progesterone varied directly with cholesterol. So when they're worried about the cholesterol, it sounds like really um, the cholesterol is just a sign that your metabolism isn't functioning well. And um, yeah, and if you artificially lower the cholesterol, uh, you tend to lower the adaptive hormones, especially progesterone. And uh, the early studies, uh, I think the first big one was done in Hungary, they saw that lowering cholesterol tremendously increased cancer mortality and uh, total mortality 
and uh, increased death rate from accidents and homicide hmm. and, so, uh, and even heart disease and strokes. So let me just interrupt. So to clarify that, you're talking about lowering cholesterol artificially through artificially. statins and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, well, they were, I forget which chemicals they were using at that time. What sounds like, uh, I think you've said this before, that cholesterol, even if you're not turning it into steroids, the cholesterol itself is protective. Um, yeah. Since the, about 1920, they showed that uh, just injecting pure cholesterol is protective against all the types of toxin uh, that they tested, bacterial toxins, um, mercury, and plant toxins and so on hmm. and uh, it protects red blood cells from from being broken down by uh, mercury and and enzymic toxins uh, spider and snake poisons and so on and yet there is evidence that a high cholesterol rate uh, you know when you get into the I don't know well that's I don't know. really just because uh, you don't get a high excess cholesterol in the blood without being hypothyroid. I see. And uh, the, uh, you, you can correlate high cholesterol with lots of things, such as uh, poor learning ability and so on. But in experiments, if you inject cholesterol right into the brain, it improves learning ability and nerve function. Hmm. Uh, I think so I'll pass on that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's the, um, the low cholesterol the low thyroid, which is responsible for the high cholesterol, that accounts for the disease that they, they associate with the high cholesterol. So, so when you when when they say strokes are caused by high cholesterol, it's actually that you're just um, hypothyroid and your metabolism isn't uh, functioning. And and yeah, so and when you can't make the protective adaptive steroids such as progesterone and DHEA out of the cholesterol, uh, your body does its next uh, best adaptive uh, procedure, which is to increase the cortisol or cortisone. Uh, and the chronic elevation of cortisol, which is associated with uh, high cholesterol and low thyroid, uh, that's one of the uh, uh, toxic effects that that you see in people with uh, high cholesterol. Hmm. The chronic exposure to um, excess cortisol weakens blood vessels, for example, and and promotes bleeding, but it also can promote clotting and uh, osteoporosis and uh, uh, various tissue. Generative processes. So, but cortisol also has a positive purpose, doesn't it? Oh, it protects you. If you don't have enough pregnenolone, DHEA, and progesterone, you need cortisol to handle stress. But the way it handles stress is to uh, depress inflammation, but it does it at the expense of tissues such as your thymus gland, muscle skin and liver hmm. converting uh, protein to uh, fuel to use for uh, 
energy to combat the stress. So it, it's uh, spending your organism rapidly to get you through a crisis situation. I see. So, so it's an emergency adaptation. And um, and then that sounds like it makes you even more hypothyroid because be, you've explained before that when you start uh, digesting your own um, muscle, uh, that that produces more antithyroid chemicals. Yeah, yeah it's um, probably the cortisol directly uh, signals the liver. They've done in vitro experiments that uh, indicate that the cortisol is uh, blocking the enzymes that convert thyroxin into the active T3 hormone. So it, it's doing many related things, increasing the circulating cysteine and, and tryptophan hmm. uh, to suppress the gland itself and uh, changing uh, several levels of physiology. So that sounds like a uh, difficult situation to get out of once you slip into that uh, unhealth, unhealthy state. Uh, Raymond, uh, let me just interrupt for a minute. Uh, you're, we're listening to Dr. Raymond Pete. It's, we're halfway through the show. And uh, Dr. Pete is an endocrinologist and physiologist and science historian uh, out in Eugene. And we have a pretty weak signal again today, Raymond. It seems like that new phone is not working very well. I don't. Is it turned up all the way? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it didn't seem to improve. It could be our connection, possibly, that's messing I us. hear some fuzzy static in the background. Do you? Yeah, I hear it here, too. Um, I'm not sure. If perhaps, I think it's all right if you talk straight into the phone. Or Do you want to try the other receiver? Is that handy? Um, no, I'll just talk closer to it. Okay, that, that does sound better. Um, so... Well, it sounds like quite a, a downward spiral if you get into that um, uh, low hypothyroid uh, situation. And I, I thought, I hate to dwell on negatives, but I thought, um, n- now you've said before that uh, you think they've changed the way they judge uh, people's thyroid functions such that uh, in the 30s or so that uh, they thought, how many people, how many, what percentage of people did they think were uh, somewhat hypothyroid? Um, about 40%, I think, by the end of the 30s. And that's a pretty r- huge number. I'm surprised they came up with that. And how did how did they decide what's normal and what isn't? Uh, they were measuring the ability to extract oxygen and burn calories. And they saw that uh, the lower a person's oxidative metabolism was, the more symptoms they had and they found that giving desiccated thyroid uh, to increase their oxygen consumption the symptoms would be alleviated Mm. and uh, so they had a a large list of uh, diagnostic symptoms everything from having yellow uh, palms of the hands soles of the feet from accumulated carotene, infertility, which they found was associated very often with uh, red uh, spots in the ovaries. Uh, the corpus luteum is—it means the yellow body, but in hypothyroid people, it was found to be a red body because it contains so much carotene. Hmm. 
and the carotene was blocking the conversion of cholesterol to progesterone because vitamin A is needed and uh, low thyroid people uh, accumulate the carotene because they aren't using the vitamin A fast enough and then the uh, then they can't convert cholesterol to progesterone and become infertile. Same process happens in the adrenals and the testicles and in the brain. Any place that uh, vitamin A is is used to um, vitamin A is needed to uh, antagonize estrogen in probably all cells, including the skin and uh, Carotene accumulates and interferes with the uh, the use of vitamin A, and so you could uh, just look at a person's palms and very often diagnose hypothyroidism. Hmm. But uh, falling hair, thinning hair, uh, thinning skin, or thickening skin—either one, depending on uh, their cortisone response. Um, uh, Sweating uh, excessively or not at all, uh, and uh, if a person had been chronically hypothyroid, uh, their growth was usually either deficient or excessive. Uh, very often, people who hadn't uh, reached an average height were found to uh, grow to a normal. Height uh, when they took thyroid, and uh, the people with an excess of growth hormone were found to uh, lower their uh, symptoms of acromegaly if they took a thyroid supplement. Hmm. So, how does um, they probably? Well, maybe they tried to explain it. How would they explain that we went from you know forty percent of the population was hypothyroid to now? What do they consider? The level to be now it's much lower isn't it well when they did that experiment on medical students and showed that the synthetic hormone supposedly worked just like the real stuff mm -hmm. uh, that went with an advertising campaign um, when I was in uh, junior high and uh, high school uh, all the fat kids were reciting the, uh, what they had heard from their doctor that they were just uh, gluttonous and lazy and didn't have a hormone problem hmm. <laughs> because uh, a test a blood test was circulated uh, at that same time that measured protein bound iodine and that test showed that 95% of the population were normal only 5% had a low protein-bound iodine content. And so even though uh, at least 40% of the people would have benefited according to the pre-war uh, diagnostic methods, um, if they got anything, it was likely to be the inactive thyroxin rather than the real mm -hmm. active hormone. And that contributed to the... Uh, the belief that since people didn't benefit, uh, that confirmed the idea that 95% of the people at least were not hypothyroid. But after, about 20 years later, 
the protein-bound iodine test was found to have essentially nothing to do with thyroid function. And huh. uh, what it had accomplished, though, was to uh, teach doctors that whole picture of things that only 5% at most would need a thyroid supplement, and when they got it, it probably wouldn't help very much because it was likely to be the inactive thyroxin. And so over the years, new blood tests came out that actually measured the various thyroid substances in the blood, but they kept the doctrine that 95% of the people were not hypothyroid. And so their normal definition made the new tests irrelevant. I see. So they just they adopted that foregone conclusion that yeah. this certain percentage were were normal and, and based everything on that. Huh. So um, that's a little bizarre that they would f- fall for that. But I guess they're often confused by uh, they adopt markers as indicating a condition. Uh, is that right? They adopt sort of these medical blood test markers. And then yeah, and th- one of the... Um, problems with the um, work up to the 1930s with thyroid was that everything from cancer and heart disease to uh, dry skin and falling hair were known to be caused by hypothyroidism and that sort of (laughs) ruined the medical business if you could cure everything practically with a thyroid supplement um and so they said uh, the belief in a panacea is irrational and we have to be scientific and each disease is a separate thing that we have to study and hmm. and treat with a specific remedy. I see. Um, so I just happened to run across an article about uh, published by a, a big medical publishing company. I think it was Lippincott. Uh, and the uh, subtitle was something about panacea for the next millennium estrogen receptor modifiers. <laughs> so if huh. the industry supports the panacea, you can talk about it, but uh, the fact that uh, thyroid supplements had functioned as the equivalent of a panacea was used as propaganda against it that, that it was irrational quacks who wanted to cure everything with one pill. Right. So uh, it doesn't fit into reductionist thinking, I guess, where you yeah. have all those specialties. So uh, continuing on talking about thyroid is a, uh, a common problem and uh, something that affects all of us in our health. Um, so if your thyroid isn't functioning, it sounds like we were talking about cell regeneration in the beginning. And it sounds like it's a key part of providing the energy for you to regenerate. And um, what happens to your cells when you don't have the energy to regenerate? Do you? Uh... Uh, well, um, the cell will start the process. Um, when a cell is injured, that accelerates renewal and healing. And one of the signals for starting accelerated renewal and healing is 
the fact that the damaged cell doesn't respire properly and doesn't use its thyroid environment to good effect. And so it shifts over to the injury metabolism of glycolysis producing lactic acid. Mm. And lactic acid stimulates the growth and invasion of blood vessels and the acceleration of cell division and uh, secretion of connective tissue collagen. And uh, so injury uh, damages the, the thyroid-governed metabolism and starts up the process of accelerated renewal of the tissue. But if you don't have the proper thyroid uh, available when the tissue has recovered, uh, the tissue might still uh, stay in that uh, stress or injury adapted condition and go on producing lactic acid and uh, stimulating cell multiplication, uh, collagen secretion, and uh, all of the uh, wound adaptive processes, uh, increased formation of blood vessels, and uh, uh, clotting very often is accelerated. So if the whole body doesn't have enough thyroid and other supportive hormones, the injury can develop into a tumor. Um, but normally, if your thyroid is um, functioning properly, instead of having those locally accelerated uh, regenerative processes every place there's an injury or stress, the whole body is normally slowly and at different rates according to the local needs, the whole body is renewing itself in a process of tissue streaming or organ streaming, uh, in thinking of the cells as um, like a fountain of cells coming out of uh, one part of the, the organ or tissue and uh, growing and functioning and then disappearing in another part of the tissue. Um, in the cornea of the eye, for example, they've uh, applied a dye and found that the cells literally stream over a period of days from the uh, edge of the cornea up onto the cornea, a constant movement of cell renewal uh, creeping over the surface of the cornea. And in the liver and uh, adrenal glands, skin and the intestine, people have demonstrated this uh, constant renewal, uh, uh, streaming or flowing of new cells into the tissue and the disappearance of old cells. Um, That's blood supply is, is an example of that. It, uh, new cells are born, live for about three months, and then disappear and the material is recycled. Uh, every tissue is undergoing that kind of a, a renewal from stem cells. Uh, but that, uh, for various reasons, even though the research was done um, oh, 
Alexis Carroll, for example, at Rockefeller Institute in the early years of the century, and uh, then Polishayev, a Russian researcher in the 40s and 50s, uh, demonstrated uh, regeneration and renewal even in the brain, and uh, Polishayev was regenerating whole dog muscles in the 1940s, but uh, that violated uh, one of the main medical biological doctrines uh, of the the, um, establishment was um, creating a a particular uh, business model of medicine and biology uh, that took over very completely in the late 1940s, and uh, the idea of uh, organ regeneration as a normal biological process was just uh, stamped out very thoroughly, uh, so that uh, people thought of uh, aging as a, a simple natural process in which each cell had its finite lifespan, and when that was used up, uh, the organism would die. And uh, Mm. you can see it in the, still many doctors believe in the uh, ovary having a certain number of uh, eggs when the woman is born and uh, menopause occurs because they have depleted their lifetime supply of eggs. Uh, the same thing uh, applied to uh, the lifetime supply of brain cells or heart cells or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, the, the, the idea was that they had a, a finite lifespan, but in fact, for a hundred years, the evidence has been showing otherwise. But it, it just wasn't admitted into mainline science and medicine. And it sounds like it was there before the 40s and it basically got stamped out? Yeah, it was developing nicely up through the 30s. The um, idea of a developmental field was taken from embryology and was being applied to cancer physiology. Even though the, the first person to theorize about cancer having a field was, um, I think, in 1830, but uh, it had developed a a good scientific context by 1930 and uh, was being integrated with embryology. Uh, The aging process was being seen as nothing but an extension of embryological development, and that was seen in terms of holes or fields uh, rather than each cell being an individual running on on a clock, sort of uh, the, you know, Leibniz and this monad theory in which there's no interaction between the monads. Every individual cell or person has its internal model of the universe running like a clock. And uh, it doesn't matter where it is, it'll do the same thing. Hmm. Uh, That really was the model that took over medicine after the Second World War. And uh, I've 
talked to many doctors who said uh, maternal nutrition during pregnancy doesn't matter because uh, it, even if the mother is almost starving to death, it isn't going to hurt the baby's development. <laughs> uh, it's really the Leibniz monad doctrine that nothing interacts. I see. It's it's more of the reductionist thinking that everything is is a separate, uh, yeah, independent piece. Yeah, um, reductionism to the point of psychosis. <laughs> I'd say that's true. Um, so when you're talking about uh, um, regeneration, you mentioned Hayflick uh, last week as being one of the the person who did the experiment that. It ended up convincing uh, most of science that uh, you can't regenerate only a certain limit. Yeah, the, the, the fact that he worked at a very influential laboratory that sold uh, material, biological material, cell cultures and such, mm -hmm. and rats to uh, laboratories all over the country, that helped to give him a reputation. People just assumed that an idiot wouldn't be working for a big company like that. I see. But I don't know whether, I suspect, you know, in one of my newsletters, I give reasons for suspecting that he wasn't as stupid as, as he seems. For 30 years, I, I thought he was just a very remarkably stupid person, but then I saw he had financial motives that might, might, save his mental reputation. <laughs> Not his moral reputation, but his, his, his mental one. Uh, boy, yeah, in, it makes me wonder, you know, where the peer review process was when when he came up with those results. Cause that's what oh, we, it's um, pretty much where it always has been. Uh -huh. uh, like the, um, I, I've been following the estrogen receptor doctrine for many years, and uh, the promoter of that uh, came up with his idea. He was working in chemical warfare, and he even titled one of his articles From Chemical Warfare to Breast Cancer Treatment. Mm. And, and in making that transition, he created the idea of the estrogen receptor as what makes estrogen effective in the organism. But the biologists had been demonstrating how estrogen is metabolized and how the metabolism of estrogen is integrated in the cell physiology in meaningful ways that relate to oxidation and reduction. And uh, it was a little complicated, but uh, very well f founded in uh, all of the uh, known information about enzymes and metabolism, mm -hmm. but this um, Elwood Jensen got, because of his military connection, he got funding and support from the Atomic Energy Commission. It was extremely expensive to create a molecule with uh, radioactive isotopes labeling it, but uh, the Atomic Energy Commission provided the stuff, and... Uh, no one else had the funding or the government permission and support to do similar experiments, but on the basis of his experiment, he claimed that 
estrogen is not oxidized in the tissue, doesn't participate in enzymic oxidation and reduction. He said it only acts through this protein, which he called the estrogen receptor. <laughs> and that, because of the prestige of his funding and his government support, and is using a, a fancy technical experimental procedure that no one else could get, uh, he shaped the whole <laughs> biological culture. And these enzymologists that he said were just ignorant, incompetent, old-fashioned fools, uh, they kept on working, and now everyone knows that they were right, that estrogen is reduced and oxidized. Um, estrone turns into estradiol and back and forth, and the reduction is what makes it uh, toxic as an estrogen. Uh, but the culture served its purpose and created the whole industry of estrogen receptor selective modifiers, the panacea of the next millennium. And all those receptor, I mean, the receptor idea is, is um, do you think there's such a thing as a receptor, as a place where things plug in? Yeah, the, the whole cell is a receptor. Okay. Um, it's, it's like a perceptual process because the state of the cell governs what the receptor is going to do. The, the cell is in charge. The receptor can do one thing or another depending on what the cell needs and what the cell, how the cell is using its perceptive capacity. It just seemed the receptor idea was so uh, such a good marketing ploy because it fits our, our, yeah, it, our it, need it, to have one thing uh, do one other thing. Yeah, it, it's a perfect model of reductionist biology that mm. really has no sound scientific basis. I just got a book out of the library uh, called The Secret History of the War on Cancer, which I haven't had much of a chance to read, but just uh, I was kind of amazed. Glancing through it, I read the preface, and uh, she had some amazing uh, quotes. It's written by uh, Devra, D-E-V-R-A, Davis, and I think it's a fairly recent publication. But she talks about working at the NSA and how she was. she had a theory that a lot of... Um, Cancer was caused by environmental things, and she was going to write a uh, book about it. And uh, her boss, Frank Press, uh, said that, um, let's see if I can find the quote. Um, he nodded as I told him of my plans. He said, gravely, it had better be a good book. I replied, well, I guess they think it will be. They're offering more than half my annual salary. That's quite a lot for a first-time author. It had better be a really, really good book, he said. I, d I didn't understand. Of course they expect it to be good, I said. So do I. Well, he said, it had better be, because you won't be able to work here after you write it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess she said she added that he was a very you know consummate diplomat, and he knew how things worked there. So that's the, the uh, NSA, which is the National Academy of Sciences. Is that a government? That's a government NAS or NSA? N NAS, excuse me. Oh, yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if the NSA was involved, too, because uh, following up uh, Elwood Jensen's Atomic Energy Commission mm -hmm. connections and germ warfare, I found that the um, estrogen receptor gene people 
have been involved in military financed uh, sterilization and cancer studies um, continuing through the University of Chicago and currently um, they've moved to the Lawrence Radiation Laboratory and the University of California but the, some people have, have formed a link right from uh, World War II down to the present studies at Lawrence Radiation Lab. Ah, she had another interesting quote too that ties in with that and uh, she talks about some of the first modern studies on workplace causes of cancer, the dangers of medical and environmental hormones, and the cancer-causing properties of tobacco were carried out and published by scientists around 1936, including many who worked in Nazi Germany. Yeah, I read about that conference against the dangers of smoking in Germany in 36. And she goes on, she says, in June 1945, Robert R. Kehoe, an army captain who was a member of the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, traveled throughout Germany gathering information on chemical and hormonal hazards for the U.S. Army Field Investigations Unit and the British Secret Service. Sixty sixty years later, these files remain unpublished. Um, A lot of American financing has gone into how to use that information as um, chemical, biological warfare. I see. So probably national security is the reason that it's never benefited the public. I think so. Uh, And uh, it has extended into um, the virus theory, and uh, it it works against environmental causation of cancer and and creates myths about cancer causation and so on. So it's hard to separate uh, ignorant... uh, uh, results from deliberate propaganda results. Hmm. Well, maybe we can uh, go on to untangle some of that in, a, in another show. I'm afraid we're out of time again, Raymond. It's been fascinating and fun, and it's gone by too quickly. But Okay. But we'll uh, hopefully talk to you very soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Raymond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bye. Goodbye. And we've been talking to Raymond Pete, endocrinologist, physiologist and science historian from Eugene, Oregon. Raymond Pete has a website. It's called Ray Pete, R-E, excuse me, R-A-Y-P-E-A-T, all one word, raypeat.com, where you'll find many interesting articles covering subjects of science history and health and nutrition. If you have any questions for politics and science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politics, A-N-D, science, at madriver.com. Politics and science can be heard weekly on WMRWLP Warren 95.1 FM, airing on Mondays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at noon. And in the Bellows Falls area can be heard on Wool LP Bellows Falls at 101.1 FM, airing from 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays and from 9 to 10 a.m. on Mondays. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization.